0: You would turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. It's amazing in the scriptures um, how many different pictures and reasons and hopes for why Jesus came are presented to us in the Bible. Why did he come? To save sinners. Why did he come? To uh, heal not the righteous, but the sick. Why did he come? The many different phrases we have for the reasons he came all center around the same thing. Obviously, we know that uh, in his life, he came to live the perfect life, uh, uh, the righteousness we should have lived. He came to live that and then to ultimately die the death that we deserve. Not just merely on a cross and, and facing a public execution, but before the very throne of God, Uh, Under the wrath of God's anger towards sin. That's ultimately the reason he came. So that those who are his might be free. Free from uh, the weight of that sin. The power of that sin. The power of that sin to crush us. And and to destroy our our day. To destroy our lives. And to destroy our eternity. He frees us from that. Uh, So in Romans chapter 15 here. uh, I want to read to you some. uh, verses eight uh, through thirteen, so that section there. Let me check something. Okay, Romans eight. No, sorry, Romans fifteen, verses eight through thirteen. It says, "For I tell you that Christ became a servant." to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So ultimately, you see, the hope, it, it only comes through Christ. And we talked about that earlier, even in this chapter, the, the hope that, that people long for, the hope that we desire. And not, not just hoping in, in a circumstance or something to get better, but hope in, uh, in true reality is in Christ alone. And so here, at the beginning of verse 8, it's amazing to show uh, what Christ is. So Christ, it says, for I tell you that Christ became a servant. Christ became a servant. We know that from Matthew 20 or verse 28, where it says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And, and then it carries on to tell us the extent of his service, the extent of his willing to sacrifice, and what is he going to do for others? It said, He came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He was a servant. And, and here specifically it says, a servant. To the circumcised, or to the Jewish people, to the Israelite heritage, he came to serve them. He wasn't against them. As well. It's interesting because, uh, as much as he begins to minister then to the Gentiles, to people who were not in the you know bloodline of the Jewish people, of the Israelites, people who were pagan and who were in a different family altogether, who had real no access to God, as it was, first he came to the circumcised, to the Jewish people, to his own brothers and sisters and, and and uncles and aunts, to his extended family, that Jewish heritage that he was a part of. He came to them to serve them, to serve them, not to be served by them, not so that they could prop him up or, or make him this great king and fill his palace with lots of good things. He didn't want to be served. He came to serve and give his life in service, the service was ultimately the righteousness lived and the death died. He came to serve the circumcised. And it's interesting because it says this in Acts uh, three twenty six 26, when uh, Paul was uh, sorry, when Peter was talking to the, the people there, the crowds, they were like, you guys are crazy. Um, we we don't believe in this Jesus. We don't believe that Jesus is who he said he was. We're still unsure about this resurrection. We don't know where he went, but we don't like what's happening. So Peter's talking to them, and interestingly, he he points to this, where he says, what God has done. God, having raised up his servant. God, having raised up his servant, he sent him to you first to bless you. To bless you. How is he going to bless you? He says, by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This was the service of Jesus. Turning people from their wicked ways. To see that he is better and greater. And the fulfillment of all things good. To turn them away from their wickedness. To stop trusting in their own righteousness. Because they if you look at your own righteousness. Versus Jesus righteousness. It doesn't even compare. Your own righteousness is stained with bad motives. Your own righteousness is plagued by the memory of all the other Wrong things you've done, it can never outweigh, especially when it's been against a holy God. So Jesus came as a servant, it says, to the Jews first, to bless them by turning them from their wicked ways. From the wickedness of their hearts, the wickedness of their their self-made religion, their longing after, here, horizontal, horizontal righteousness. A horizontal approval, like if they can just say that I'm good, if, if, my, if my church, if my, everyone around me can just say that I'm a good person, then I'm good, right? And then I can begin to feel good, and I can know that I'm good with God. We know that's all false. We know it's false, and so the way that Jesus blesses us is by turning us from that. We don't need to turn to trust in uh, approval from anyone, but Christ alone, and that's the beauty of Christ's approval, isn't it? It's not based on us actually being worthy at all. We are not worthy of his approval. And yet he, in his mercy and compassion towards us, compassion, we are uh, like we deserve no mercy. We are the bottom of the rung. And yet he comes and he stoops down to us. He turns us from that way of life to himself. He, He serves us in that manner. He serves us, and, 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 Paul, and Peter, sorry, pointed out to the Jews in the book of Acts, he went to you first. He went to you first, like he delivered the message. You should know better. You should know this. You'd have, you should have seen him coming. You've anticipated this Savior, this Messiah, your entire life, your entire family lineage has been looking for the Redeemer. And here he is, and he came to you first, and you rejected him. Ultimately, they crucified him. It's interesting though because he's just fulfilling his promise that he would be a savior to them. And Micah chapter 7, verse 20 says, And you will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. You will show them your faithfulness. You will show them your love. You will extend to them mercy. Christ became, verse 8, take a look again. I tell you that Christ became a servant. Again, not to be served and have everybody else fill him up or lift him up or go by his agenda. But instead he came to serve, including, like, think of his service. And think of that compared to, like, our service for God, right? Like, our service to God is we've decided the hour of our week we're going to give to God. Maybe two, maybe three We've determined the things that we like to serve God with and the things we will never serve God with because we're uncomfortable or we're not gifted or, you know, kids are not my thing so I don't want to serve in a Sunday school or a kids club and youth, I don't get them so don't ask me to do anything with youth. Uh, Don't ask me to minister to homeless people that kind of scare me. Uh, Don't ask me to minister to, uh, you know, women in crisis in pregnancy or abusive situations. I don't know what to say. Don't ask me to uh, volunteer at a local health center because I, I don't know. We decide so often, we really, really narrow how we want to serve God, don't we? And then you look at Christ. From, from the moment he began serving, was with no concern for himself. No concern for his safety. No concern for his comfort or his schedule. He just served. Unending. The guy never got a rest. Like, he would go sometimes for a rest He'd leave the land and go on a boat to get away from a crowd just to take a breather. And, and then in order to get uh, a time to recharge himself and, and be in prayer, he'd wake up just extra early. It's not like he would say, well, I'm going to bump ministry. I'm going to bump my surveying later because I wake up at nine and then I need to spend my hour in prayer. Jesus said, well, you know, if that was what was happening, I'm just going to wake up earlier so I can redeem that time and, and pray so that I can be ready to serve at nine instead of moving service all around to suit me and my comforts. It's not the way Jesus served. And it's interesting that that's the way we often serve is around me. And that sounds like serving me, not serving others. Very unlike Jesus. But here he says, Jesus Christ, sorry, Christ became a servant to the circumcised. And here's the reason. It gives a couple. Uh, First, is to show God's truthfulness. Second, is to confirm the promises. And third, is to magnify mercy. Is to magnify mercy. So first, to show God's truthfulness. You see that there. He became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness, or to display the truth of God, or to make manifest. The idea uh, captured here is that which was hidden is now revealed. The, the truthfulness about God, the the, the um, complexity of his character, the fullness of his um, promises. Because that's it. The people trusted that God was true and that he kept his word, that what he said was true. But they didn't really know that until Jesus had come, right? Because he kept saying that he would deliver them and he kept saying that he would save them. And so they're, they're, they're believing that's true. That's what you do in faith. You believe it's true. But this... Became reality. It became seen and known and experienced in Jesus. You know, Jesus is God in the flesh. The very thing that was concealed and hidden and mysterious, what is God really like, became known, became seen, became flesh. John chapter 1, verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. We've seen his glory, not just like a, a picture of his glory or not just a representation of his glory. but We've seen his glory in a person because that's it. You know, in the Old Testament, you see the, these displays of the glory of God, a pillar of fire. It's glorious. And you see God is all glorious, but it's not personal, is it? It's not a person. You see the glory of God in so many different things in the Old Testament, but they're not a person. And so, that's why John 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Truth. He came to show God's truthfulness. Jesus Himself said in John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth. He's not a truth. Jehovah Witnesses changed that. In their translating of the Bible, they use "a truth." He's just one of many truths. He's not. He's the truth, singular. He is the measure of truth. He is the standard of truth. He is pure truth. And so here it says, "Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness for those who maybe had been doubting, for those who who needed their faith uh, secured." For those who needed their faith realized and experienced he became flesh to show God's truthfulness. 1 John 5.20 says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. So that we may know him who is true. And it says, And we are in him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. 1 John 5.20, write that down. It's an incredible verse to mull over again and again. 1 John 5.20, And we know the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life came to manifest a hidden reality, the truth of God. The truth that was once only experienced by faith and, and in little portions of God fulfilling his promises and in ways that he would display himself, that that truth in limited scope is now seen and realized and experienced fully. We believe the words of God were true, but the Messiah has shown he is true. He would indeed save their people from their sins. It's now seen and known and displayed and experienced. God is true. So it says, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show them God's truthfulness. Believe him. He is true as you have always believed he is true. That's the first reason he came to be a servant. Second is to confirm God's promises. To show the truthfulness of God in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. To confirm the promises. The promises that he made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The promises he even made to Adam and Noah. To fulfill the promise he made to Moses. To fulfill all the promises. Christ has come to confirm God's promises were true. To confirm that what he said he will do. And that's how he's showing God's truthfulness, isn't it? He's showing God's truthfulness by confirming the promises. The very things that God had promised, Jesus is fulfilling. He is showing them. He is completing them. Therefore, that's allowing people to verify that God is true. And that he's a promise-keeping God. To confirm the promises of God. In Genesis 17:7, 7, there's a promise uh, made to Abraham. Here's what he says. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you. Throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you. And to your offspring after you. To be God to you. That was God's promise to Abraham and his offspring. Is to be with them. To to multiply them. To bless them through Abraham's line. Well, we know the fulfillment of that when you read the genealogy of Christ, is Jesus himself. And God, in in Genesis, when establishing this promise, was a covenant. And he did a covenant ceremony, which was so beautiful and interesting, where uh, normally two who would be entering into an agreement or a covenant would both walk through. They would both say, I agree to do my part. You agree to do your part. We are in a covenant together. Well, when he made that covenant to Abraham, the only person that walked through was God. God said, it's my covenant. And I keep my promises. And I am putting this on me. It's not on you, Abraham. So when Abraham's trying to figure out, well, how am I going to make this happen? I don't have any kids yet. God said, don't look to yourself. Look to me. I have made this promise. I have made this covenant. And what, what, was, what was impossible, Sarah laughed at the idea that they would have Children. She was old and barren. They'd never had kids. Yet God fulfills his promises. So Abraham has been tasting his entire life, just fulfillment of God's truthfulness, seeing God as true, confirming God's promises. But ultimately, it didn't even come to full fruition until Christ had come to establish this everlasting covenant. Because if it's just continuing in a bloodline, well, what if they had no more males in their bloodline? What if the family got cut off, then God wouldn't be able to fulfill his promise? Well, no, it was an eternal covenant. It had to be kept. How would it be kept? Through Christ. Christ coming to establish a new covenant of, of a new people. His children blessed forevermore that he would be their God and he would be and they would be his people. He established this covenant and he kept this covenant promise. So Christ came to be a servant to the circumcised to show them God's truthfulness, but also in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, the the fathers. And then the third is in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. In order that they might glorify him. So beyond that Jewish-Israelite heritage is to now the Gentile people. God has established his promises and he has kept them, and when he is and he made the promise to Abraham, uh, not the one I read in, in Genesis 15, uh, 17, but in fifteen, he said, "All the nations will be blessed through you," and that was confusing for the Israel Israelite people forever, absolutely confusing. They thought, "How does this make any sense? How will our God become their God? Will it just be by us? You know, because this was a common thing. You know, you'd have a servant in your home." Uh, The servant would stick around past their time and they kind of become a part of your family and they took on your God. And so maybe they assumed that was the way that he was going to bless the Gentile nation. That wasn't true and full and fulfilling. It was only when Christ had come that the Gentiles might also glorify God for his mercy. They did not deserve it. They were not a part of the family. They didn't have any credibility so it was all mercy, and so they glorified him. So it's interesting because God's keeping his promises, showing his truthfulness. God's giving mercy, showing his truthfulness. And where do we see that totally fulfilled? But in Christ. And then you think about that today. If your neighbor who is a not a believer and he's never read the Bible, he's never been to church, how are they going to see and know and discover God's truthfulness? Because here it's told, we're told that Christ became a servant in order to show God's truthfulness. Well, who's Christ's servants? We are. We are Christ's servants. When we, when we agree to uh, love him and, and give our whole allegiance to him, we say, I want to love you. I want to live for you. I want to serve you because you have served me so well. You have delivered me from the ultimate uh, thing that captured me was my sin, And I want to to serve you out of gratitude. Not because I think I I need to do this in order to get into heaven, but because I love you. I want to serve you. So we're to be the servant then to show God's truthfulness. We're to be the servant to uh, confirm the promises of God given to us. And so you think, well, what promises has God given me? Well, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive them. Do you believe that? And, And so... Does your life confirm that promise? That's one I've just pulled out of midair here. Does your life confirm that? That you really believe that God has just to forgive your sin if you confess it. Do you live like He has forgiven your sin? Do you uh, carry your sin around the rest of your life? Do you are you burdened by guilt? Are you trapped by something you have done, or do you believe the gospel? Do you believe that the gospel actually frees you from those chains? And do you live free from that guilt and that shame because you know that it went all on Christ? Do you confirm the promises of God? That if you uh, uh, believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Do you believe that? Do you confirm that promise? Does your life show that God is true to that? And that, that when God says, I will be your God and you will be my people, do you... Does your life show that he is true to that? It's really kind of a hard thing to think about that this is now my service to Christ, the servant of the circumcised and of the Gentiles. He came to serve so that God's truthfulness would be seen and known and experienced and made manifest so that God would get the glory. That was the ultimate end goal for the glory of God. It ends that in verse 7 for the glory of God verse 9 for the glory of God, verse 13 for the glory of God. It's also that God would be adored like He deserves. Because we know, and we say this often, is the only thing that, that we need truly uh, to be satisfied is God eternally, right? We need God eternally. Well, the, you're not going to um, come to God. You're not going to see uh, your sinfulness before a holy God. You're not going to, uh, break down in, in humility to beg that God for forgiveness, you're not going to be free in that God if that God is not glorified. So, our job is to, to glorify God together, to, to magnify Him, to show how glorious He is and deserving of honor and praise in our own lives, in our own families, in our communities, in the nations. The glory of God is primary. All other things pale in comparison, and all other things should be meant to serve that goal. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So here, Christ came as a servant to show God's truthfulness. Because if God has shown us true, He gets glory. To confirm God's promises, because He gets the glory. And then to magnify God's mercy, which we'll look more at next week in the Gentiles there from uh, verse 9 through the end of that section. But it's amazing what Christ has come to do. And then what we now to do the torch has been passed on to us we call ourselves christians that was a derogatory term saying oh you're a mini christ you're an ambassador for jesus so you represent jesus we represent the servant of god's truthfulness we represent the servant of god's promises we represent the servant of god's mercy displayed let us then embrace all of it Believe it in our own hearts. Believe it in our own lives. Allow us to be transformed by it. And out of that gratitude, extend that to others. Display it to others. Be a servant of that showing to others. It's a great joy in experiencing it and extending it to others. So then let us be, as Christ was, servant of all. Let's pray. God, you are pure and holy and true. Everything you have ever said is true. There is no hint of untruth in it. It's all true. Every promise you have ever made has come or will come true. And your mercy is more than we can ever imagine. God, help us then, having experienced all these things from Christ to be those who are also servants of Christ and extend these things to others as we experience them, as we make them manifest and seen and displayed to show who you are. Because we want people to bring you honor and glory. We want that to happen in our own lives. God, give us boldness and courage to talk with others about their opinion on you, their opinion on death. God, we need to have these conversations more so that we can be encouraged. It is encouraging. We often... Think about evangelism as something to be afraid of, sharing you, something that kind of scares some people, but ultimately there is joy in obedience. So help us to obey. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.